Hey, just a heads up that in this episode, we talk about suicide. If that brings anything up for you and you want to talk to someone about it, you can reach Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. I first came across Mayanna's story when I was reviewing the WPGA's policies, of which I'm a board director, and noticed our transgender policy and wondered how it had all come about. Mayanna grew up with a love of golf and dreamed of playing on the professional tours. She was also terribly uncomfortable in the body and gender she was assigned at birth and dealt with incredible internal turmoil. In the early 90s, there wasn't the exposure or education about gender dysphoria there is now, but Mayanna started the brave process of transition. It was either transition, or as she told me, take her own life. Golf eventually returned to her life, and soon she was playing in tournaments and received an invitation to play in the Women's Australian Open in 2004. It sparked a fire in Mayanna, and she successfully lobbied other major golf tours to change their policies and enjoyed an 11-year professional career on the Ladies' European Tour, one of the biggest tours in the world. Despite Mayanna's incredible career, she may not have the points of view on transgender policy that you may expect, and it speaks to the heart of the complexity surrounding the issue. Education, understanding and respect are vital in the discussion. But I wanted to do this episode not to deep dive into the issue or to platform a particular point of view, but to highlight Mayanna's personal story and journey, one where she did manage to challenge and change one of the most conservative and traditional of sports. So let's go back right to the start. Can you tell me what was a little Mayanna like growing up? Oh, God. Are we going right back here? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess a probably confused little boy, really. Um, a little kid trying to work out a way in life. And who knows, maybe golf was a bit of a rescue, you know, because uh, we moved around a lot. I'm born in Copenhagen. Then we moved to England. Then moved back to Denmark. Then moved back to England. And then moved to Australia. Why so much moving? Uh, mostly with my dad's work. So I guess family just um, goes along. Mm-hmm. And my dad started playing golf and I was about eight years old at the time. So he got me a little cut down golf club and we started hitting a ball around on an oval, um, as many probably do as kids. And then it just took off from there. When we moved back to Denmark the second time, um, then the whole family got into golf and there was a couple of other families up the street that also played golf. So we all joined the same club and golf, you know, weekends just became like a family golf weekend and it was fantastic. So the whole climate of golf in Scandinavia is so different to what I've experienced in Australia. And it is so much more about getting people out and enjoying the game rather than adhering or with less reliance on, uh, adhering to strict, yeah, you know, (laughs) rules, dress codes, uh, whatever. It's come out, play, enjoy. So we'd spend whole weekends out on golf clubs and that was the start of that journey. Was it love at first sight with golf? Were you good at it straight away? Did you love it straight away? I mean, it's a hard sport to pick up. It is. I don't think anyone's good at golf straight away, but I think you either love it or hate it. For me, it was a total love, and I think it appealed to to me, my personality. Uh, I'm a very kind of individual kind of person, autonomous, um, 
and I like those type of individual pursuits. And I've always loved the challenge of golf, the constant learning, the growth. It just never stops. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can be the best player in the world and you still want to get better. Just when you think you've got it as well, something happens and then well, you get the yips and bad yeah. shot and <laughs> you're back yeah. to where you started. Exactly. I mean, you know, my best round, I've, I've shot eight under par and there were still mistakes that I made. Mm. Did you dream of being a professional golfer? Yeah, from probably that time when I started getting better, I think my early teenage years, 12, 13 years old, is when I'd have these dreams or I, I don't know what you really call them, but, you know, being a touring golfer, I thought, yes, you know, <laughs> I'd want to do that. You said, you know, opened and said that you were a very confused little boy. What are your first memories of not being comfortable with who you were? Uh, probably, I think from around seven years old. Um, you just start getting this sense of, you know, somehow having this identification with girls or wanting to do what other girls are doing or wearing, playing with. I, I don't know. It's uh, I do. I still find it really hard to put into words because I think it's a strange thing um, to go through. And I've always thought it's weird. I don't, I don't know why you'd want to, why you have, why someone has these feelings or where it comes from. I can't explain it. Did you voice those feelings to other people or did you keep them to yourself at the time? No, to, to myself, yeah. Why did you do that at the time? Because I think we all get a, a sense of difference. You know, we all want to fit in in society and I think we get that from an early age. Obviously the school dynamics can be pretty vicious and you just want to be like everyone else. You don't want to stick out. You don't want to be... Um, the, the centre of ridicule or teasing or bullying or whatever it is. And I was just acutely aware of those things. Were you different. bullied at the time? No, no, because I kept it all to myself. I just, <laughs> I just fitted in and just to, to be like everyone else. Did you do anything to try to force it the other way or do try to um, embrace things that were typically male or was that... How did you react and how did it affect you? Yeah, I guess, I guess that comes later. Um, but again, with my, with my personality and my thinking, it's like, okay, this is a, some stupid thing, a weird thing, a bit of a phase that someone goes through, you know, let's kind of man up and, you know, you think it's just a phase you're going through or this is ridiculous or it's stupid. Um, um, and I think it, it, it something goes through a lot of people's lives living with, gender dysphoria is to, you know, get over it because, again, nobody wants to be different and particularly with something like this, um, it's, it's pretty out there. You know, people become, become the centre of ridicule and it's something that I've often stated that this journey, when, you've, when you keep it to yourself, it's like to the outside world, you're just this average, normal, everyday person like everyone else, but inside you've got this hurricane and, and destruction going on that nobody else can see. When you transition, it's like turning yourself inside out. All of this hurricane, the turmoil and everything is externalised for everyone to see, but you actually get an inner peace and an inner calm. And it's kind of nice because then that, just makes the external world easier to deal with and you go okay well this is me once you start embracing that 
then you're kind of more ready to take on what the real world might have to bring on. So when was the first time that you realised that becoming a woman and becoming female could be a possibility for you? I remember a 60 Minutes program uh, that they covered another woman who transitioned. And I think that was probably the first real realisation that something like this would be possible. And that was, that was the first time. Because um, obviously then there was no internet. There was, there was just the TV basically and magazines that you could look up. And, but it just provided that avenue of, okay, there's a possibility here. But still no knowledge of what, what do you do? How, how, do I, how do I address this? Who do I talk to? Um, so I still kept it secret for a while. Um, how old were you when that happened, when that 60 Minutes program came on? Maybe 15, 16. Mm. So when did you decide that you were going to transition? Decide. That's a really difficult term because uh, it's wrapped in so many other aspects. If you're asking sort of what came to the final decision, it was, um, you know, deep depression and I've, the other option was dying. So it becomes pretty easy if you want to sort of top yourself. So you've got that or an option of living. I thought, well, okay, well, let's try living <laughs> a little bit more and see how it goes. So that's what it came to. And, you know, I started seeing a counsellor uh, when I was about 18. And uh, that went on for some years, uh, again, trying to find, for me, different alternatives and working out any other psychological issues or who knows whatever else might, might be going on. But um, nothing came along and I thought, okay, well, I've, I've always known that this is who I am. This is what I've got to do. And now I've felt like I've exhausted pretty much every other option and, and alternative and this is what I need to do. Here I am today. <laughs> so did you fight it for a, for a long time during your teenage years and or just well, dealt yeah. with that torment, that hurricane yeah. inside well, of you, you? You do. It's a daily thing. It's a daily cycle of having these thoughts of what I feel, what I need to do, then then it's don't be an idiot, this is really stupid, get over this, right, I'm going to do something, I'm going to grip my teeth this time and I'm going to work through this. And then it goes, yeah, but that's not going to work. And then actually, no, look, I need to do this, I need to transition. And then it's just going around in circles and in circles and in circles every single day. And when I was going through this, I could never get to sleep. It took me at least an hour or two to get to sleep every single night. I never could. The most, one of the most profound moments was when I started transition, when I started hormones, I started sleeping. I fell asleep. I'd never had that before. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. How did those around you take it? Because what year are we talking with uh, when I transitioned, started transition about um, 92. And, you know, my family, they were always really supportive, really lovely. And, you know, it was a tough journey for them as well, I'm sure. And they, they didn't share that with me. I guess I had my own pretty challenging journey to go through. I hope they had you know, one another or partners that they could talk to. And... Um, yeah, everyone did the best they could. It was really lovely. So I was very lucky in that aspect, for sure. I feel like this might be an ignorant question and it might be a piece of string and different for everybody. 
But that transition process, I imagine it's both mental and physical, but how long did that transition process take? And is it different for everyone as well? That's, I'm sure it's a unique thing for everyone and how long it takes. It is, you know, how long is a piece of string? Yes. There's so many aspects to it. Yes, there is just the physical part of the transition. And then there's finding your own identity and your own style and working in with friends and work and society around you and how you sort of navigating the space. You gain new friends, you lose some friends. And the whole kind of aspect of life changes because now now we're presenting ourselves as what I would call our true selves. We're not putting on this facade anymore. So a lot of friendships are built on that facade that we presented. And now, you know, with a lot of interests change as well. And the, the, the process to me feeling really comfortable probably took, I don't know, at least six years probably. But even some aspects have taken even longer uh, to to really get comfortable with yourself, to really, really feel like myself uh, and growing in a person. And a lot of that is just evolving as a person and maturing anyway. So a lot of that is just kind of merging together. One, one bit is aspect of transition. Another one is just a part of growing older as a person. Sure. Because how old were you when you transitioned? So I was around mid-20s when I started, early mid-20s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where did golf sit in your transition? Did you continue to play and be involved in golf? No. No, I pretty much stopped playing and I didn't play for about five years because uh, transition, again, for me, that was a pretty all-consuming thing to go through. And then it wasn't until really I had life on track, you know, life was on track again and my life always felt like my, my life was on pause, you know, like you've got a CD or a cassette playing or something and you hit the pause button. That's what my life was felt like. I couldn't, I couldn't envision a future or future plans or what I do because I had no idea where my life, my personal life was going. And when I finally completed transition, had surgery, felt comfortable somewhat in myself. And then all of a sudden it's like one day the pause button was released and now life goes forward. Now I'm like, oh, shit. Now what am I going to do? Now I can, where am I going to go in life? What am I going to do? And then it just so happened when, uh, with regard to golf that I just, with I was with some friends. They played golf. Well, friends, this was, I was with a friend that had some, some of their friends come along. So it's a new acquaintance. We got talking about golf and then they said, oh, come out and join us for a game. And I did. And then I joined the golf club and got back into golf because I just love it so much. I've always loved the game. Was golf accepting when you came back in? People didn't really know who I was when I came back in. It's just a golf club. You just come and join. Again, it's just such an individual pursuit. So it's not like being uh, joining a team, like a, a soccer team or a netball team or anything like that. It's just you join a golf club and you go and play. You can go and do your own thing if you want the whole time. Um but obviously you start meeting people, you start playing with people. But I've always had a policy of being open about my life and I was at the golf club with the people I met and not that I went out sort of advertising the fact, but I would generally be open about it and then just slowly meet people and um, then it just gradually progressed from there. How did it progress? How did you come to 
playing competitively? Did you, you obviously found your love for the game again, but um, how is it that, you know, you took it to that next step? I just love the game so much. And because of my personality, I think, which borders on neurotic perfectionist, <laughs> I hate <laughs> I hate doing things badly. <laughs> I just imagine neurotic perfectionist in golf. Then, yeah, that's, yeah. There could be like the secret to success, but wow, if you have a bad round and that's like more than frustrating. Like I don't even think Hello. there's a word in our language for that. So. No, exactly. And I think there'd be a lot of us out there, uh, you know, and, and low-figure low handicaps and pro, and pro golf. It probably goes hand in hand with yes. it. You know, who, what other sort of personality would go out practising six, seven days mm. a week for three, four, five hours and <laughs> day yeah. after day after day? But, um, yeah, so I got back playing. And like I said, I just hate doing things badly. So I thought, well, if I turn up a little bit earlier, I'll hit a few balls on the range before going out to play. And then my game started to get better. And I thought, well, if I just did a bit of practice, I could probably get my handicap down again. You know, I started back with about a 12 handicap after previously being down to a four handicap. And I thought I'll just practice a bit. And then it just went from there. I couldn't help myself. I just wanted to get better. And because of the the journey in life and because of the sort of the the controversy with the topic, I just, it was just much easier being in my own space. And golf is just this place you can go be in your own space, in your own world, and the rest, the world could just bugger off. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do my thing. And I did, I enjoyed it. So I had my work. I still had full-time work. I would come out after work. And before I knew it, I was practicing five to seven days a week after work. Wow. Yeah. Because when you transitioned, what difference did that make to your game? So when you lose testosterone, obviously testosterone is the most significant factor going through male puberty that gives boys and men the extra strength and performance advantage in in a number of different ways. But losing testosterone does have some significant impacts on the body in a number of different ways that all take different periods of time. Probably the the, the quickest impact is one on um, reducing the amount of haemoglobin the blood uh, is produced in the blood, which carries oxygen, which is more an issue with endurance type sports and recovery of which golf isn't really one. But there is a longer period effect, which is one of loss of some strength and muscle mass, and that takes a longer period of time. It's not something where you wake up one day and you go, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm Mm. weaker today. Mm. But it's it's a gradual thing. Uh, But then realise something, lifting something one day that I can't lift Mm. or that I used to be able to lift. But when it came to golf, I went back and played a golf club that I used to play at when I was male or living as male. And I noticed my driving distances were significantly shorter. Um, I didn't get the same amount of backspin that I used to get playing into some of the greens that I used to have fun on. And par threes, there's a par three I used to hit an eight iron on. I was then hitting a six iron. So, you know, that's quite a difference. Yeah, because golf's an interesting one when we we talk about this because, I mean, men can drive the ball further, but, you know, having masculine characteristics and testosterone isn't going to make your approach approach shot 
better or it's certainly not going to make you putt better as well. So is, is golf unique in that sense in some of that, that, that strength still isn't going to make you a better player? I think, yes, golf, I think it does make golf unique in this space because it is a combination of so many aspects. There's sure there is a combination of, of strength, but then flexibility and dexterity and that finesse and that touch and the imagination and the mental side of things, your, your confidence levels, there are so many aspects to it. And then obviously the, the mechanics that you adopt, how your body's inclined to move and how an individual puts all of those things together. And, you know, you, we've, we've all seen examples of people that are big and strong that hit it a country mile but they're no good in tournaments. I mean, I pick one example, um, a girl from New Zealand, Phyllis, um, she's so beautiful, hits her an absolute country mile, <laughs> but sideways, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've played with her a couple of times and she hits a drive that is just out of this world. Mm. And I thought, I didn't even know you could hit it over there, but Phyllis <laughs> could do it. But Phyllis became a long world driving champion, you know. So she found her niche and it wasn't particularly tournament golf. Beautiful girl, big, strong, hits at a country mile. But, yeah, doesn't, didn't quite have the finesse for tournament golf. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you see players, I think if you pick Lydia Ko, for example, that I don't think is a particularly long hitter, but just straight, yeah. straight, straight. You know, grab a hybrid, hybrid hit it to three feet, you know, that's how you score in golf. Um, so short game. And it was one thing, the Women's Golf Australia president at the time, because I was then, you know, I'm, I'm stepping forward a bit from the amateur golf, I was then invited to join the state squad. And and I was called by the, the Women's Golf Australia, uh, South Australian golf president. And she spoke with my mum for about an hour before she called me because she said, oh, you know, they wanted to ask me to, to join and said she had a lovely conversation with my mum and then called me at work and said, you know, we'd like to invite you to join the state squad. And I thought, wow. And we had a good bit of a chat and uh, she'd taken some time prior to this to come out and watch me play. And and she said, so, well, you know, you're obviously, you know, not really the best striker of the ball, you know, a li- little bit erratic, but she goes, my short game short game was on point. She said, I got up and down from everywhere putting. So I've always been a really strong putter. And, you know, even girls on tour loved my putting. And I semi-coached two or three of them on tour when I was uh, touring in Europe and Australia um, because they loved my putting stroke. And it was and is a strong part of my game. Sure. So what was your reaction when they invited you to play at the Women's Australian Open? The biggest golf tournament in Australia uh, for women. You know, yeah. That one was an interesting one. The then Women's Golf Australia president, Macy Mooney, she was a rock star. She really was. I think she was actually quite pivotal in women's golf making advances with addressing the issue of transitioned uh, women competing in golf. And I wasn't familiar with the process that they went through, but by the time I started playing amateur golf, the ruling had already been addressed. They didn't have a long policy. They just went through the 
aspects of transition and the medical aspects and the impact of transition and deemed, yep, well, anyone that's gone through this transition and surgery is in this condition, so yes, you can play. So it was just, yes, if you're a transition woman, if you've done this, that's it, you play. That that was it, no long convoluted policy or anything. And I tried a couple of times doing playing pre-qualifying for the Women's Australian Open and I just felt so much pressure on myself. I just... Uh, you know, I, I psyched myself right out of it the whole time because I knew it would be a significant factor if I actually managed to qualify and get into the event. And I was chatting to Macy one day and um, we were chatting and she actually said, um, you know, what if I gave you an invite to the Women's Open? And I thought, wow, okay, because they had two or three invites as Women Golf Australia they could give out. And she promised me an invite and I thought I was wow that was amazing and um, so I had that invitation ready for the next for the 2004 Women's Australian Open and I I went off to Europe and then in the meantime I was actually actually able to get on oh no I actually can't remember no I didn't so 2003 I managed to go and turn professional I joined the Danish PGA over there so then I technically became pro And then I came back to Australia and competed in the Women's Australian Open as a pro. So when I had the invitation, I knew it was going to be a significant event. So I had a good friend of mine um, at the time, (laughs) Rod, Rod Murray. He'd been a golf writer and a newspaper journalist, and he'd attended golf tournaments, the Women's Open, quite a lot. And I asked him, so he was going to caddy for me, and he was also my my media advisor. And I asked him. Yeah, it was. And I asked him, like, you know, what what, what do you think I should do? You know, should I just turn up to the event and take what comes or should I, you know, leak the story out a couple of weeks beforehand? He goes, yeah, leak it out. Yeah. I contacted another journalist in Australia, a golf writer who I respected. So I kind of, I gave him the exclusive. Yeah, yeah. It was really lovely. He got the first story and then it was out in the Sydney Morning Herald and then the media barrage came in. So... Uh, it was a good decision to leak it out prior to because mm-hmm. I was got pretty busy with all the media. It was quite I huge. Bet. Yeah. And I was contacted by lots of newspapers and people all over the world, which was which was fantastic. But then Golf World in the US, Golf Digest, wanted to do a story, Bill Fields. And so we did a long interview and I was doing other interviews with uh, someone else in Australia. And... Then he ended up contacting me again and said, look, can we just do another interview because I've got more questions. And I learned that became quite a thing because it's quite a unique issue that people don't know much about. So, Bill, we did another interview and it's quite funny. So he, they finished the story and he published the story and he called me back and he, he said, he almost apologised. He said, look, I've got the story ready. He said, <laughs> I had to cut it down. We made it five pages five pages long in Golf Digest, and they said they, they never print articles that long, and he was apologising for making it so short because oh. <laughs> this is so complex. There are so many issues to it, and it was just a wonderful article and so lots of great media, which was really lovely. You did a media conference before the Australian Open as well. <laughs> How was that? Yes, that was pretty huge, actually. That yeah. was uh, So my friend Rod that was caddying, he, so I had the media conference on the practice day, I think it was sure. the Tuesday from memory, 
and came into the media centre and Rod came in with me and he was gobsmacked because he's been going to the tournament. He's one of the journalists. He would be in the media centre and he said he's never seen it that full. (laughs) He said it was packed. Every seat was taken. The back wall was lined with cameras. Um, For me, I had no preconceived ideas, so I'm just, okay, this is a media conference. I sat up on the stage I said, um, be nice, <laughs> getting ready for the barrage. And Rod said, okay, so there's one journalist you want to look out for. He wrote for the, is it the Sydney Morning Herald? Said, Peter Stone said, if anyone's going to test strips off you, it'll be him. And he was sitting front and cent- front left. And he did. He asked a couple of curly questions. Mm. He was trying to dig some information out of me. And so the next day, the, the first paper I wanted to get was the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm. I wanted to see what Peter wrote and I kind of psyched myself up, prepared myself for it and he wrote a really lovely article. Wow. And um, yeah, which, which was which was really lovely. Yeah. So um, yeah. 2004, were you the, had, had we seen that in Australian sport beforehand? Have we seen a transition athlete play in a professional event in any sport prior to that? I have no idea actually. I'm quite sure, I don't know, I'm sure it's probably happened before me, but I was certainly the first in golf. But I will say I always clarify it with being the first openly transitioned woman to compete in professional golf. Because the thing is, you know, people make this assumption that people would always tell if there's a transitioned woman playing, but you don't. And, you know, it's really funny there's a, a lovely story. After I've won, I think, my first state amateur championship in South Australia in 99, I had a bit of media so people knew who I was. So I was playing a local Varden event in South Australia at Grange and there was a couple of people playing. One of them was the Women's Golf South Australia Council members and there was another man walking along with her. So she told me this story afterwards. So they were walking along watching me play and then this guy turned around to her and said, well... I think well, I might go and find this bloke that everyone's talking about. And she ch- <laughs> and she chuckled to herself and thought, well, you've been, just been watching her play for the last three holes. <laughs> you know? Um, <clears throat> and the other thing is... ideas, isn't it? Well, yeah, mm. completely. And I also was contacted by uh, a lady once that wrote to me. And I think it was in 19... Ooh, I don't know when it was. When was it? I think it was the 1980s, might have been 87. I can't get the date right. But there was an issue in the US with a transsexual woman that competed in the uh, US Open or US Amateur Championship. And uh, she was a little bit older. Was it Charlotte Wood? I can't quite remember her now. I think it might have been Charlotte Wood. So she was a bit older, I think in her 50s, competed in the US Amateur, and it was after her competing that the USGA came out with their ruling of must be entrance must be female at birth. And I was contacted by email uh, some years after, maybe after playing my first tournament, the, the Women's Open, and she was actually a transition woman who was competing in the same event that nobody knew anything about. So... And this is what, you know, people have no idea that this happened. 
and she wrote to me and she was considering pursuing a professional career. She was married, but then after seeing all of the media and what went on with Charlotte that competed, she decided not to go out of respect for her husband and wanting to avoid this limelight, but nobody knew she existed or played. And so even today, I'm still known as the first and still, I'd have to say, the only transitioned woman who's competed on main professional golf tours. Uh, there are other transitioned women playing and competing, but I wouldn't say on main, you know, the, the main tours around the world. But who knows? You don't know. I'm just the only, the first open, openly transitioned woman to play. There could be someone else out there that has transitioned and nobody knows about. How did you go in that Australian Open? Ha! <laughs> Terribly. Well, especially <laughs> the first day. Oh, my goodness. I I had, well, not quite this long row of, of cameras and reporters at the first tee, but there was a few. They were all lined up. My nerves were off the scale and I played like crap and I shot 83. And um, so it wasn't the best innings. I've broke down in tears at the end of the day. It completely destroyed me. Um, plus playing such a bad round, you know, I hate, it was probably the, the worst part was playing such a crap round of golf. Uh, and it really was emotionally draining. And uh, so I went out the next day and at least the next day was a bit more respectable. I think I shot one over par and I only missed the cut by one shot, um, really. So it was it was almost respectable uh, to round um, result. But anyway, there it was. You didn't stop there. Suddenly, you, you already competed in Denmark in order to turn pro, but you then went and went to the LET, the Ladies European Tour, which is the major tour. Did you have to yeah. lobby to change their laws as well? So it was quite interesting. Obviously, the rules hadn't been changed to play in Australia. The reason I was able to play in Australia was because the event was run by Women's Golf Australia, the amateur sure. body. Yeah, right. Okay. The amateur body had changed their rules so I could compete because they gave me the invite to play. But all the professional golf tours around the world had a, a rule stipulating must be female at birth. So I couldn't compete professionally anywhere. So then I started writing to the different golf tours to see if they might consider changing their rules. It was a, a request and there was no threats of, you know, discrimination or suing them or taking them to court. I didn't want to go that avenue because um, I wanted this to be um, a journey sort of 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 inclusion, of everyone being involved and an amicable solution to say, well, look, here's some information. Here's me. Most people in golf heard about me at the time. I'd been playing golf, amateur golf in Australia for a number of years prior. Uh, here's a little bit of information, medical information that I'm aware of and also through talking to my various doctors as well and getting my experience and I wrote to the Ladies European Tour, the LPGA in the US and the ALPG in Australia, um, obviously what is now the WPGA in Australia, to see if they would consider changing their rules. And, you know, they got back to me, said, look, we'll have a look at it. 
And I also wrote to a mini tour in Sweden, the then Tilia tour. And they took a couple of weeks to look at it. And they wrote back to me and said, yep, look, we think it all looks okay. You can come and join our tour. So 2004, I actually had a golf tour that I could go and compete on. And it was great that it's just right next door to Denmark. So I can go to Denmark again, have that as a base. And I mean, you can drive to Sweden across the bridge. So then I went and played on my first tour. And uh, and then I kept corresponding with the golf tours. The communication was breaking down a little bit. Um, but I, one of the things I wanted to do was to get to Europe and I wanted to actually go and meet the officials. So I wanted to go and meet the officials from the Ladies' European Tour. I wanted to meet some more of the players. I'd like to go to some events. So I went to a couple of events in throughout Europe. So I went to one in Ireland, uh, went to one in Holland, and I went to one in France as well. And so it was just to go and because at least some of the players would have heard about me, read about me, and it's always nice to put put a face to a name meet people in person, and I wanted people to meet me personally and just kept up the correspondence. So kind of a long story short was that probably to my benefit was that 2000, actually 2003 was the year that the International Olympic Committee actually came out with their first first policy addressing sex-reassigned athletes in sport. So they had a bit of a foundation policy that, the golf tours eventually based their change of regulations on. So they did eventually change their rules um, and they adopted pretty much the structure of the IOC policy with a, a couple of additions and alterations, which I saw as fundamentally being based in them not really knowing what they were doing and protecting themselves and trying to cover all bases. And I get that. That's fine. And so then the Ladies European Tour changed their rules. Then the ALPG in Australia changed their rules. There was a change of rule in UK. I wrote to South Africa. They had a tour. They changed their rules. Yeah. Canada changed their rules. And, and did you do it so you could play on the tour or did you do it so other people could enjoy golf and dream of, of playing on golf tours? Well, I guess it, it obviously by default, it affects all people. So it was addressing the issue. So it's not obviously a rule, yes, my inner bagger can go and play on tour. It's obviously a change of rule would then facilitate it. And yes, I was focused on my own career. So obviously I did it from mostly my, my own motivation. So I could go and compete. On so, but it points. just comes by default. Yeah. And uh, so then uh, I had my first tour to play on in Sweden and I entered my first uh, Q school for Ladies European Tour, which was later in 2004, uh, where I ended up getting my full tour status. I finished 11th at Q school and had my full tour status for 2005 season. So you competed on the LET for how long? I think it was, yeah, 10 or 11 years. A long time. How did you go in that? Uh, average, <laughs> very average. So look, the first season, because of all the, because of who I was and what I was doing, media was hugely interested. And I just knew by that time that playing in Europe, uh, 
media wanted to talk to me everywhere. So I gave myself a bit of a, I gave myself a three-year plan to start with. So I knew the first year would probably be a write-off. Obviously, I was playing the ALPG season in Australia as well, sort of mostly the Pro-Am season and the Women's Open, the uh, Masters up on the Gold Coast. And so that was this summer season in Australia and then summer season in Europe. I just knew, so I entered all the tournaments I could in Europe and it did turn out that every tournament I went to, there was media wanting to talk to me. And it was quite consuming, of course. I didn't know what tour was going to be like. I played pretty average. I missed cuts all season and had media every tournament. And it actually wasn't until the last the, the last event of the 2004 season was actually in Denmark. And that was my first cut. So... And I loved that that happened in Denmark. Anyway, that, so that was 2003. I lost my tour status. I had to go back to Q school. I got my I got my tour status back again, you know, because Q school is no small feat. It's still the expense. You've got to go through that grueling thing. You've got so many players vying for 30 tour cards. Um, so, and I did that again, got back on tour and then, right, now I'm going to focus on my game. So 2006 and 2007. And I thought, okay, I'm going to see how I go after 2007. If I'm kind of making some progress on tour, then I'll either stop or I'll keep going. And I felt I was gradually making progress, starting getting better results. I never won a golf tournament uh, after that sort of 11 odd year career. I had a number of top 10 finishes. I think I had one or two second place finishes but yeah, I've had a number of top 10 finishes, you know, had had probably one good year. I think 2008 was probably my best season on LE, mm. LET. You also worked with lots of sports organisations all across the world on helping their develop their transgender policies. What was the, who were some of the organisations that you worked with? Actually, that's not really true uh-uh. because I didn't. Yeah, I've... Um, so what I have, I've been involved in a few sort of roundtable discussions sure. with different groups around the place. So it's not specifically for sports bodies or in sure. development of their policies, but sort of contributing my voice to some roundtable discussions. Mm. Um, for a sports organisation to develop a policy is such a complex process, isn't it? But one thing that you always say, which is evident from your story, is it's not a new one at all, is it? This issue is come into the spotlight in Australia, but it's an issue that sports organisations have been tackling and and have been approaching for a long time. Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. So obviously I've been in this space now for about 20 years. Mm. Yes, it's a a complex issue. And in my view, it, it has actually become more complex because of the amendment to the IOC policy in 2015. So in 2015 the IOC policy removed the requirement for surgical intervention and reduced the ineligibility period from two years down to one year. And I've witnessed different sporting bodies attempting to address this issue with all of their different policies. And they they all end up making their own efforts. They convene their own... uh, diversity panels or medical panels to deal with this and address with it. They come out with different variations of policies. 
sort of based around the IOC policy, but they're not. And I've just seen it again and again. And then I've been on these roundtable discussions over the time and it's fresh faces that are going over the same discussion, the same points again and again and again. It, it's, it's like people aren't working together. There is no collaboration. So they keep starting from the beginning every single time. And that's a little bit frustrating to, to witness. And there are no new solutions. And now a lot of the sport bodies, of course, they have to address broader aspects of sport with regard to community level sport, social sport, school sport, and then professional and elite level sport. And I think they are, they are really two separate entities. And my usual focus comes from my experience in professional sport and elite um, sport with golf. And I think that needs to be dealt with in its own arena. And community and social level sport in another one. The aspect is, of course, of course, everyone should have access to sport. Nobody should be excluded from sport. But when it comes to professional sport, Olympic sport, medals, world records, prize money, livelihoods, some checks and balances need to be put in place. You can't have unrestricted access um, but those things, sort of things don't come into community-level sport. Community level is about the social aspect. It's about the, the physical fitness, the exercise, the um, getting together with people, um, growth of individuals, kids, inclusion. And uh, so community sport can be more inclusive of diversity. And I think particularly team sports, um, lend themselves to less restrictions with inclusion and it becomes so topical. But now when you're getting to the issue of having requirement of surgery removed, uh, I think that matters, particularly with professional and elite sport. And there needs to be a line drawn somewhere. And Is it true every sport is so different though? Like we've talked about golf, that's different to say swimming or powerlifting, does every sport, I, I think someone said to me, don't try to solve it, just try to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis and every sport is trying to deal with it on a case-by-case -case kind of basis. Do you agree with that? To a point, mm. I think sports bodies, they at least need a foundation to work to and the the, the, the trend at the moment is going towards inclusion at almost any cost. So you can have a, a foundation of a policy of inclusion, but there are so many variables to address. And I think when you start addressing the different variables and going, well, in this sport it's okay, but in this sport it's not. With this individual or type of individual it's okay, and with this individual it's not. And that's all well and good. But how do you determine what the cross-off point is and who makes those decisions on what criteria. And this is where the discussion comes down to and the disagreement because so many people disagree on the criteria used as a cutoff point. And then you're getting all of this tension going on and when you start addressing all of the variables, it almost be starts becoming untenable. Mm. 
it starts becoming too complex and unworkable. And it's like, where, where do you stop? Where do you stop at all the variables? So it's complex, isn't it? It's not, it's not easy, is it? No, it's really complex. So you could liken it to, for example, like, you know, Paralympics um, uh, and sports mm. where there's some different categories uh, dependent on different levels of ability, uh, whether there's amputees, uh, sight impairment, those kind of things. You have a look in general sport like boxing and fighting, you've got different weight categories. All right, that's easy. Someone is either this weight or they're not. You know, they're within this weight category or they're not. So they're kind of easy to define, but that's also a weight category within the men's category and within the women's category. They're quite different. Then you've got the same in weightlifting. You've got different weight categories. And, you know, I've seen some comparisons of, you know, sort of weights and overlaps of men and women, but there isn't 100% overlap. It doesn't go like this. It's, it's, it's an overlap like this. And there is a very, very clear average um, amongst males that are, are on average taller, stronger, faster, heavier. And when you even have a look at weightlifting as an example, if you, you can grab shorter, lighter men are still able to lift much heavier than larger, heavier, stronger women. So there's still a huge disparity between the male and female category. So you can't just simply base this on a weight or height issue. Because of the physiology involved, there is still quite a difference. But the important factor is, of course, when it comes to transitioned women in sport is what is the impact of transition? So it's all well and good to talk about the differences and abilities of males over females. That's one aspect. And a lot of people use this as an argument, but males are stronger and better and faster than women. That's it. That's why they should be excluded. And they ignore the impact of transition. And this is actually a really important point because this gets glossed over. So the, the base level performance of males is an important bar of reference that you work from. Now, what is the impact of transition? Does transition mitigate the advantages that are gained through male puberty to a significant enough degree to permit inclusion in women's competitive sports? You can't just have a one-size-fits-all policy no. because there are so many different aspects so in different variables. sports. Yeah. And it just starts becoming so, mm. so complex. Mm. But no blanket rule could cover no. all sports. It's too complex. And I think the good yeah. thing is that, you know, as we've shown with golf 20 years ago, like they're tackling this and not one rule doesn't mean it can't be updated and outdated. I think as well, like not every male is going to beat a female just because they're male. So no. that's the other thing, other variable that to put into account. But I guess it's, it yeah, it's, it's, it's addressed, but it's not a new issue and it's certainly um it's certainly we're talking about a small number of athletes as well it's no it's not like we're getting overrun with transgender athletes in in women's sports and I, I take issue with I just think there's a massive list of things that we need to address in women's sports that are probably more important to have a focus on than than this issue as well equal pay 
um, unconscious bias, broadcast. Uh, let's talk about number of men in, in high-powered positions in sport. These are the issues that I would love to be addressed in women's sports before you know, we, you know, obviously we have to look at these transgender policies, but they're already there. Golf did it 20 years ago and they're, they're being addressed. You, I mean, you brought up obviously a number of really important points and I agree completely. There's a number of things that need to be addressed. You know, I'll leave the equal pay thing alone because that's <laughs> almost a, a conversation in Mind itself. Field. And obviously, yeah, well, it is. But when you're talking about, you know, we, we, there are so few t- trans women in sport that it's not like it's being overrun. No, it's not. It seems to be becoming more prevalent. And I always say I do feel, particularly in professional elite level sport, I think surgical intervention should be a requirement. And so I still stick by, my, by the 2003 policy by IOC. But in that context, I think we'd have far less of an issue if that was still a general policy in sport uh, with surgical uh, intervention being required. And back then when I first started touring, I said when you start having a look at um, the tiny population of golfers that get on tour and then you have a look at the tiny proportion that trans women present in the global society, you provide that proportion of trans women to the tiny proportion of people that get on professional golf tours I'd say, well, statistics will say that that probably means you'll only get one trans woman on tour every 20 or 30 years. Mm. And actually, so far, that's proving to be the case because I'm still, <laughs> you know, after, after 20 years, yeah. I'm still the only one. Yeah. Um, so that's showing to be the case. So it's really, it's not being blown out of proportion. And there was lots of people back then saying when I started on tour that it's going to open the floodgates to, mm. you know, guys having a sex change and joining the women's tour. And? Yeah. Okay, where are they yeah. all? <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Why did you quit golf? Well, I didn't really quit, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I just wasn't competitive enough anymore. I didn't want to, to quit. Uh, I was... Well, not really forced out, but I just, I wasn't hitting it long enough anymore, ironically sure. enough. So yeah. I wasn't competitive enough. I was missing cuts. I wasn't earning enough money. I just couldn't justify it anymore. And, do you still um, play now? Uh, I do now. Uh, I didn't play for about three years. I didn't touch a golf club. Mm. My sticks were in their travel cover, in a friend's wow. loft, uh, gathering dust literally. And uh, I went off and sort of tried other things in life. And um, I've been hanging out in a little town where there's a golf course, quite a nice little golf course, and it's typically empty. <laughs> so I've started going out because I can just go and be in my own space yeah. and do my own thing and enjoy my golf. And there's a few people I've got to know in town that I occasionally play with, but I just go out and do my own thing. So it's very sporadic and... Um, I'm enjoying, I've still got that neurotic perfectionist in me. So <laughs> it doesn't let you. <laughs> I've kept up my fitness at the gym. So I'm actually still able to play. I've actually got my game back back up a little bit. So <laughs> I'm almost able to play the standard of golf that I could do on tour. So I can still play a respectable game. Look out. So I can go and I can actually go and enjoy it. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever look back and just think, you know, I am amazed that golf, which is so traditional, which is, you know, typically conservative in Australia, as we said, that you 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, you know, really changed that landscape 
for sport and were able to, I mean, I can't even get, you know, golf clubs to change their dress codes. So, <laughs> but, yeah. but you managed to do something quite, quite incredible, especially for sport. Thank you. And, um, and yes, I do. I pinch myself. I have lived such a privileged life. I mean, living life as a touring sports person, a professional sports person for anyone is a privileged life. And I've, I'm so grateful every single day for what I've been able to achieve and what I've been permitted to do. Um, I'm grateful to all of the people and the golf tours that were game enough and forward thinking enough to take on this hurdle to do what they've done to all of the players and the people and everyone that I've met along the way, all the friendships that I've got. I mean, obviously so many friendships for the girls on tour, but the privilege, what a fantastic environment to be in, you know, to be around just focused, driven, motivated people. I mean, it's electric. You know, it's one of the, 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 the big things to stop. And the fact that, you know, I've gone down a little bit, just a little bit in history, you know, I've made a bit of, oops, I've made a bit of a, a mark, um, <laughs> you know, wh- whether it's good or bad, I, I don't know. If it, it, I guess history is going to to tell whether it's been a, a positive or a progressive step or not, but it, it's, it's brought a, it, it, it's brought a focus to, to the issue. And I obviously knew that was going to be the case with golf because golf is an international sport. When something significant happens in golf, it becomes global news. And I was aware of that stage and I embraced it. And yes, I used it. And, but I wanted to bring just a, a, a normal face to the issue of transition and trans women and just provide a different aspect and a touch of reality and humanity to it. You know, we're lacking so much humanity these days. It, it's sadness, you know. Um, so I'm glad to have been able to make that bit of progress. But I think, you know, moving forward, we all need, need to move forward together. It's not just an individual thing. It's not just about one person. It's not just about one minority group. It's about everyone. And at the end of the day, someone is going to feel left out. Someone's going to be left out. The people that shouldn't be left out of women's sport is women and girls. You would have helped so many little boys who were confused in their own skin by being able to look into the Peter Stone's article in the Sydney Morning Herald and, and see your face. I mean, you know, to have someone to look at and think, okay, well, they've done it like that person on 60 Minutes did for you. You've had an impact. You know, that's that's a big one. That's a whole different view. And I've kept, I've got so many emails that I've received from people over the years that wrote to me that, that I did touch, that my life did have an impact. I mean, I've had people that wrote to me as well that were depressed and ready to commit suicide that then opted to transition instead. I got an email from a guy once in Germany. He was getting new tyres fitted on his car. And there was a golf magazine in the waiting room and there was an article about me in there. And he said after reading that article, he decided to go and address his, his issue, his gender dysphoria, and go and pursue tra- transition. Wow. Um, and, I've, and I've had a f- I've just the most beautiful touching emails from so many people mm. that I've kind of opened their eyes on it as well. It's a real kind of blokey blokes as well. And I just <laughs> love it. You know, so one, one guy who I'm now friends with on Facebook for years, he's fantastic, a, a, a weightlifter guy. You know, he wrote to me, he goes, you know, 
I used to be one of these blokey blokes. If I saw someone like you, I'd be hurling the abuse and the criticism and rah, rah, you know, the whole kind of homophobic thing. But he said, I watched this 60, because I was on 60 Minutes. Uh, it was primetime live in America. And him and his wife watched this program and he goes, totally changed my mind. And he mm. wrote this lovely email to mm. me. He said, you've totally given me a new perspective on this and you've changed my mind. You're a rock star. We're on Facebook. And, you know, there's a bit of interaction here and yeah. there occasionally. And, yeah. and, you know, it's really lovely to have been able to make that kind of difference in the broader aspect of society. Yeah. Well, you had an impact on the tour. You had an impact on the game of golf um, worldwide. Um, but you talk about those people that stuck by you and those close friendships. And as part of this podcast, we always ask someone who's been with you along the journey in some form to record a little memo. And I got in touch with um, pro golfer Tamara Johns and she recorded this message for you. No. A friendship that spans over 15 years, I have always admired Mayanna's approach to everything in life. Good, bad or indifferent, she will always see the good in people and every situation. Mayanna, I've learned so much from you over the years and hopefully vice versa. We've been through so much in this wonderful golfing life and there will always be those funny stories to make us laugh at every opportunity. You always show your strength and courage and that is a trait that is well known amongst your friends and your peers. I wish you all the very best in everything you do. You didn't tell me that was coming. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, always special, isn't uh-huh. it? When you have your peer Thank support. Thank you, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tamara's, um, wowee. Yeah, that's been a long journey. And remember uh, Tamara and others from one of my early Gladys Hay Interstate series. And um, she was just always welcoming um, and just become a, a great friend. We've toured together, we've travelled together, been of all over Europe and Wowee, one of those rocks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tamara. <laughs> wow. Was the final question we ask everyone who comes on the show is if you could go back and, and tell that little 12-year-old self something, what would you tell that little Mayana bagger? Huh. I guess I would just, I'd probably just continue with the life the way that I did to just be true to myself, be true to people around me. Uh, and just know that there's kind of a lot of goodness and a lot of opportunities out in the world. It's kind of, I don't know, follow your heart and live your truth and um, everything is going to work out actually way better than you ever thought it would work out. Mayanna, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've been wanting to do this for for quite a while and um, I can't tell you, yeah, I'm I'm very honoured and very grateful for you coming on and telling your story with On Her Game. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. I've really um, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. So much. On Her Game is presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggins.